Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, you may not know this unless I tell you, but this is take 53. And so it's quite clear that things have changed quite dramatically with regards to our normal rhythms of meeting and fellowshipping on uh, Sunday. Uh, I don't think I've ever personally expected to be sharing the word via video or through Facebook, but uh, we can still praise God that we have the technology that allows us to share and to connect in some way. And so uh, praise God for that. The reason why we are meeting in, in this fashion and communicating in this fashion is COVID-19. COVID-19 has put the world on alert and has impacted countless people. Which started out as a distant problem has quickly become a local problem, a local issue. For some of us, it's an issue that has hit even closer than any of us could have imagined. Many of our family have been either sick or recovering, and some of us who have dear loved ones have departed to be with the Lord. These days are without a doubt some very trying times. And in these trying times, what often happens is just as fire melts away impurities, these moments in our lives reveal or help reveal what is truly essential and what is truly precious. Many of our affairs and issues when pressed by truly critical matters show themselves to being unimportant. A parent who has a child that they are feuding with quickly forgets to feud if the child's life is in danger or some critical issue arises. Nobody, who is saying that is, stops and thinks about how they should fix their hair or what clothes they should wear or what makeup they put on when they're in a house that's on fire. You don't stop to consider, how will I call for help? Will I scream or will I whimper? You just simply do it. The point is, if we consider where we are now, with this virus spreading across the world, if we consider the loved ones that are being affected and the many lives that are that are being lost, the question becomes in the, the heat of this situation, what is essential? What is important? What is truly precious? From a Christian worldview, we should we would say we shouldn't waste COVID-19. And that is to say that from this worldview, we know that God is in control. God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty and according to his being, he does all things that are perfect and good. And to realize that, to hold on to that, to cling to it, is to know that there is a purpose behind the suffering. There is a purpose behind the hardships. There is a purpose behind a virus that is swept across the world. And to ignore that would be to waste an opportunity that this very difficult time has afforded us. They say with lemons, you make lemonade. So it should be also that in moments like these, we should remember what the real issues of life are. The issue of our standing with God. Make no mistake about it, church. Whether you believe or don't believe, the problem between mankind and God will still stand. If you're alone in the room with the person with whom you owe a debt to, turning off the lights doesn't remove the person from the room. It doesn't void the debt that you owe. So the same goes with depravity that mankind is faced with. The debt that is owed to God and disobedience still stands, whether you believe or don't. Attempting to ignore or disregard the fact that there is a God doesn't exempt you from a future occasion when you must give an account for how you lived your life. 
The wrath of God against sin isn't a mere folktale or superstitious fear created to keep people in line. But in all truth, it is a reality. And so the question is, how will you reason with God on that day? How will you deliberate with God on the day when you are judged? For some of us, that day may come sooner than others. And in the midst of a crisis which the world is facing right now, we have to remember and we have to understand that this question is one that looms over all of us. How will you answer? Will you say that you've been a good person? Will you say that you gave to charities and took care of the old people and, and, and the sickly and that you never cheated on your taxes or said bad words or had an alcoholic drink? Will you say that you never cheated on your wife or did any drugs as if these things would merit some type of special favor with God? Will you plead ignorance? The fact of the matter is, is what we see in the text this week and what we've been hearing these past few weeks from Elder Sean and Nick is that there is only one way for you to be justified before God. Justified on a day when he asks of all of us that we account for how we lived our lives. Justified on a day when we are judged by God. Today, I'd like to walk through the text with you and ultimately land on why it is important that we rest in the church. Before we do that, I'd like to recap the context behind the text a little bit and, and uh, we are touching on today and follow as Paul continues to plead his case as to why and how we are to be made right before a holy and righteous God. But before we do that, let's read the text and pray. We are reading out of Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. So um, if you don't have it, you can definitely pause the video as uh, you turn the pages. But I'm, for the uh, sake of time, going to just begin to read. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null. And the promise is void for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in other in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offsprings be. Let us pray. Father God, we pray to you from various locations this morning, thanking you that even though we may seem separated, we are one in you. We thank you because even though there are hardships and great difficulties in this world, we can take heart that you have overcome the world. The affairs and the major concerns of this life do not hold a candle to the ultimate concern, and that is to have a favorable relationship with you. We ask that you remind us of, 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 of all that your word says as we hear the word of God preached today. 
And we ask, Lord, that your goodness and mercy will continue to pass over us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so, for those of us who haven't heard the sermons for the past few weeks, or aren't familiar with the passage, it might feel as if we're walking in on a conversation. Paul, who is the biblical author of the book of Romans, is presenting to the church of Rome, who are made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, what the truth is. What is the truth? Or what is this truth? This truth that he is presenting is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His purpose in writing the book was to ground the church of Rome in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 15 shows us that his eagerness to preach the gospel because it, it, it highlights that he is unashamed of it. Because he says that this gospel, this truth, this good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation? Saved from what? Paul continues, saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, he explains, isn't some arbitrary emotion or unjust response to mankind. But it is the wrath that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So when we consider for a second what Paul is saying, he is saying that salvation from mankind is needed from God. Man in his wickedness needs to be saved from God. It truly blows my mind when we consider this point, because we aren't talking about Stephen's little boy, Henry, who doesn't like you or Phil from down the block who has it out for you. But we are talking about the author of life. We're talking about the all powerful God who is wrathful against sin and ungodliness, of which Paul states every single person is. Man needs to be saved from God. And this isn't because God is the villain in all of this, but because we are the villains in this cosmic warfare. We are the vile creatures that stand opposed to God who made us. We are the ones that every time we think or we do something or we say something, it is contrary to the law of God. Perhaps we might think that this is unreasonable. I mean, after all, why can't we do or think what we want? Why can't we be free to decide and, and do whatever it is that we wish to do? As Nick pointed out last week, our chief end, the purpose for us being created, the reason why we exist is so that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. No one makes a laptop that doesn't turn on or type. No one makes a cell phone that doesn't make phone calls. So then it follows that God did not create man so that we would be rebellious and wicked. Even with the freedom that we have, this freedom is to be given and, and appreciated and enjoyed within the boundaries of what is pleasing to God. What would glorify him? Man, however, doesn't do that. And by the standard of God, the law, man is wicked and vile. Man does not follow after the standard of God, desiring to glorify him. Mankind does not desire to do and to be what he is created to do and to be. And because of this, man is facing the wrath of God and is in need of saving. What is the solution to this problem? 
How can man be saved from this very dreadful threat? Who would be strong enough to save man from an all-powerful God? Paul's answer is God. Paul's answer is that man is not without hope. Elsewhere in Romans, it is explained that by the works of the law is no man justified before the sight of God. What that says is that man himself is not a solution to the problem. He is not able to extend an olive branch or wave a peace flag towards God in some way uh, by in and of himself trying to quench this, this conflict. How could he if it says that in scripture that his righteousness is like dirty rags? How could he appease God's wrath? And so if there's going to be any ceasefire in this warfare, if there's going to be any halt to, the, to this conflict, it's going to have to come from God. And this is Paul's point. This is what Paul is so passionate about in this text. Salvation. What is needed for mankind from God is to be, be provided to mankind by God. Let me say that again. Salvation is what Paul is passionate about. What is needed for mankind from God is provided to mankind by God. The good news is that, is that this, though this glorious gospel or through this glorious gospel, man is provided a way to be justified before God. To be considered righteous in his sight. A righteousness that he in and of himself would never be able to attain. The solution isn't made by our own works. But by the works of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The one who lived a perfect life according to the law and died a death that he didn't deserve. So that as Nix mentioned last week that the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that he attained through his perfect life, his sinless life, would be imputed to all those who would believe. This means that on that final day of judgment, when God judges you on the life that you've lived, rather than see your own feeble efforts to live faithfully, to please him, he now sees that is God, the righteousness of Christ. The glorious gospel is that all who believed are promised redemption, promised salvation, and a new heart that is enabled to desire to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Doing what it is that we were created to do. And so it is the gospel. Belief in the gospel which expresses faith that justifies man before God. Paul continues to state his case by explaining that this isn't something new. This isn't a, a novel invention or this isn't something that God all of a sudden just started to do or, or had a, an imagination to, to, to figure out. But something that has always been the intention of God. He uses Abraham as his case study as he presents what the scriptures say about Abraham's righteousness. He presents the case that Abraham wasn't considered righteous before God because he earned it with his works, but because he believed God. It is his faith in God that has saved him. What did God promise him? God promised Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. And not only him, but to his offspring as well. 
In what way was this promise to be realized? Well, when we uh, we understand that the promise that Abraham was looking forward to, this is something that he saw and something that he believed in faith. Hebrews 11 chapter 10 says, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This means that he wouldn't see this promise realized by his own hands, but by something that God would establish. To be the heir of the world is no small feat. If we really think about it, it would seem almost impossible for Abraham to have, have achieved this on his own. It would seem that only God would be the only one to grant such a promise. What does this promise entail? To be the heir of the world. And even more so, interestingly, who is Paul talking about when he mentions Abraham's offspring? When talking about his offspring, Galatians 3.16 offers great clarity. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and that to your offspring, who is Christ. And so in this text, we see that the offspring refers to Christ. Christ, we know from Hebrews 1, 2, has been appointed by God to be the heir of all things. And so to include Abraham would have we consider them joint heirs in the promise. To summarize, whether it has been given to Christ, to Christ shared with Abraham, most importantly, the inheritance speaks of being given the land of the earth. But most notably, this promise refers to salvation for himself and for his seed. Paul's point is that the promise, amazing as it is, wasn't given to Abraham because he earned it, but because it was given by grace. This means that it was God who granted the gift and not Abraham who deserved it. It wasn't Abraham who had the law to obey or circumcision to do that would grant him such a favor with God to achieve and to uh, attain such a promise. But that it was given by grace, but that it was given by God. It was given because of faith and faith alone. And by his faith alone, he was given such a promise and positioned to be unto his seed, the father of many nations. This fatherhood isn't simply expressed in the following of the lineage as Jewish people did and still do. But also it is to be expressed in all who find faith. In all who believe in God and are counted righteous. Because of faith, not just the Jews will find themselves as the seed of Abraham, but all who believe and all who have faith. And thus the promise made to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations is fulfilled. In that many who believe, not just simply the Jews alone, but all people would be children of Abraham. Paul continues explaining this by saying that if it were simply a matter of obeying the law, then faith would be void. There would be no place for faith. All of us would be right with God on the basis of our own merit and our own works. Our ability to obey God would determine whether or not we meet his conditions, and that would just simply be that. But the realization is that the law brings wrath 
that the law brings wrath by necessity points to something else, something greater. Because as we've already looked at, it is impossible for man to obey the law unto salvation. No man can keep the law. A purpose then of the law is to bring condemnation, to bring wrath upon those who don't meet the conditions. Now, if those conditions, those standards were low, then perhaps we could say, you know, I'll take my chances. I'll just try really hard and see if I get in, see if I can uh, do what it is that God has asked me to do. The fact of the matter is, is that since those standards, since the law to be obeyed is requiring perfection, there really isn't any room to try. If you are looking to earn salvation, you don't get points for trying to obey the law. Either you do all of the law and keep it perfectly all of the days of your life, or you fail and are condemned. There is no middle ground, church. That is why it depends on faith. This is what Paul is illustrating, that to be justified before a holy God does not depend on anything other than faith. And it is this faith that is expressed in Abraham as he hoped against hope that he would be the father of many nations as God had promised. Now, it's not hard to imagine that he may have had his reasons for disbelieving what was being promised to him. Perhaps he might have even seen very keenly that such a promise seemed highly unlikely to be granted. But as the text tells us, he hoped against hope that the very God who created all things out of nothing, the God who gives life to the dead, the God who sustains all things in existence, will be the God who will be good on his word. And it is this faith that has saved Abraham. What are the promises of God that you are standing on? Is it wealth? Is it health? Is it a spouse or children? Is it protection from your enemies? Is it success? As believers, we can be very tempted to try to hope in God for the things that he hasn't promised. Perhaps one thing that we may say is that we hope or we have faith that we will be exempt from a difficult life. The Bible does not promise any exemption from a difficult life. Or that if we as Christians pray up real good, then God is going to give us whatever it is that we want. For me, one promise that stands tall above those type of desires is found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And in there it says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a beautiful text. Whatever these difficult times may bring, it doesn't disturb our faith. Our faith is built on a promise that come hell or high water, Christ will be with us. No matter in sickness or in health, in wealth or in poverty, in life or through death, we have God. And having God is the most essential thing that we will ever need. If the world around us in their panic and in their anxiety doesn't reveal that to us, us believers who have the word and see, then I don't know what will. The beauty that 
enraptures us, that builds us up, that keeps us, is that above all, no matter what happens to us, we have God. And we get God by having faith. And so what we see is that faith is simply taking God upon his word, believing God, believing his promises. If it is true, then what we are looking at, church, is a layup. It's one thing to weigh out the trustworthiness of another man's word. It's a whole nother matter to consider God's word. It becomes a question of what am I even weighing here? This is God that we are talking about here. This is the very source, the very fount of truth. If he says it, then it is what it is. The beauty becomes apparent that there is a wonderful relationship between faith and grace. Knowing that our own merits will grant us nothing but death, it is the grace of God that we would be invited into his courts, that we will be considered his children through the means of faith, that we would find reconciliation with God and sure and satisfying fulfillment on the basis of faith. On this is a very gracious act by God for, for him to provide for us. And this is indeed why the gospel is such good news for us. Because it means that although we're not exempt from trying our very best to obey God and to please him and to show ourselves as his children, that is not the means by which we are justified before God. That is not the means by which he loves us. He loves us because of faith. Do you believe in God? Do you have faith that he will sustain you, that he will keep you? Do you have faith that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins? Do you have faith? The amazing thing, the wonderful thing, is that this good news is not meant to be kept a secret. Countless people who find themselves in a place of anxiety and stress, despair and hopelessness can find rest. They can find fulfillment. They can find healing. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The promise is there for those who find themselves run down by life. The promise is there for those who are at the end of the road. The promise is there for those who think that they have it all together. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is needed by all men and women. All people need this. And the truly wonderful thing about this need is that the church is the place to find it. As I type this right now, or as I was typing, there was no cure uh, for the COVID virus, no vaccine available. And so countless people who are probably in despair about what their options are should a loved one contract the virus uh, is, is all over the place. Sin is, as a truly nasty virus, however, is far deadlier than anything that we've ever seen in history. Or where history would ever record. For those who stay in sin, the mortality percentage is 100%. No one dies in sin and survives the wrath of God on the day of judgment.
And yet, because of the grace, as we have mentioned, there is a hope. There is a cure. There is healing. Faith as a reconciler between God and man isn't found under a rock or hidden on a mountaintop somewhere or in the knowledge of some sage herbalist uh, somewhere out east. But rather it is found, it is expressed, it is encouraged wherever there are two or three gathered in his name. Wherever there is a church present, wherever there are people who love the Lord, there the invitation of faith will be. It is amazing that even though we're not gathered in a church building, the notion that the church has ceased to be uh, seems to be all over the place. I believe it was Tony Jen who said on a prayer call that uh, in history, church history, we see that God uses uh, hardships like this to mobilize the church. To see countless churches take to social media and use technology um, to connect with each other and to continue reaching out to those who don't know the Lord is a wonderful thing. This is truly what the Lord would have us be doing in such times, not being idle, but by still keeping the fire burning for worshiping and pleasing and honoring him, even in the midst of such difficult times to be a mobilized church. This is truly what the Lord would have us be doing in such times. The word says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What greater peacemaking and rest offered could be provided than reconciliation between people and their God? Rest is provided in the church. Rest for the weary souls. Rest for the wandering prodigal children of God. Faith in Christ and the gospel call is the invitation for all who are far from God to come home. Are you far away from home? Do you feel this message? Do you feel this word tugging on your heart? Do you fear or feel that God has been speaking to you and placing something in your heart about reconciling with him? Life is short. Do not delay. Do not delay another moment. Have faith in the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Have faith and take God upon his word that he will be with you, not leave you, nor forsake you. So that in the midst of these very trying and difficult times, although all of us will have to face and deal with these hardships in life, you will have a comforter with you. You will have God with you. Faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel call is the invitation to come home. Come home. Come home. Members of the body can also experience a sense of perpetual rest as they are again and again renewed in their minds about the sheer magnitude of grace. Believers, just because the call to faith are for those who don't have it, does it mean that we're exempt from being reminded constantly to renew our minds and to renew our faith and to renew the realization that God is for us? And if God be for us, whom can be against us? That the realization that this life is but a vapor allows us to be acknowledged that we have God. We have God. And that this grace that God has given us 
is showered upon us through the gospel. To bask in the light of our salvation is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so the question is, are you at rest? Believer, are you at rest? You should be. You should be because you have God. You should be because he is there with you right where you are, right where you stand, right where you sit, right where you lay. He is with you. Unbeliever, are you at rest? Are you at rest? Only you can answer that question. And God knows all things. Do not, de do not delay. Do not lie to yourself. Reconcile yourself with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today, Lord. If we take anything from it, Lord, it is the it is the recognizing that no matter how we think we live our lives, no matter how good we may uh, attempt to be, we ultimately always fall short of your glory. We always fall short of the standard in which you have set. We pray, O oh God, as this realization has hit us, Lord, that you would have an open door open for us, that your grace would still be available. Lord, that you would enable us to be faithful unto you so that through faith, Lord, we might be justified before your sight, that we might honor you all of the rest of our days through faith. We thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. We thank you for the world um, around us, everything that you have given us. We ask, Lord God, that those who are sick and those who are dealing with hardships, Father, that if it is not your will that you heal them, Lord, that you may be with them, that you may comfort them where they are, that you may continue to renew in their minds, Lord, the faith that they once had so that they may realize, God, wherever they are, that having you is greater and much more important and precious than their state or their circumstance, or their situation. We praise you, God, for this comfort. And we ask, Lord, that we may hold on to this comfort so that we may live lives that are hopeful, lives that are not in despair, so that as the world sees us, they may recognize the very hope, Lord, that you have given us in your gospel. We thank you, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Church, once again, it's great to see you, even though I'm not seeing you. And... Um, yeah, I'll catch you guys when all this stuff is over. God bless.